Well, I think you just put the geek in Bible geeks. <laughs> <laughs> I just totally nerd out it's so good. much, didn't I? Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bible Geeks Weekly Podcast. This is episode 82. I'm Brian Sheely. I'm Ryan Joy. And thanks so much, everyone, for tuning in. Week 41 of the End of the Book Bible Reading Program, John chapters 4 through 8. Jesus has a lot of really challenging things to say. I don't know how they all got condensed into these five chapters, but it seems like just about every chapter has you scratching your head like, what did he just say? <laughs> yeah, he has all of these little metaphors that he just grabs onto anything around him and explains mm-hmm. it. I was thinking about how Alfred Hitchcock had this term for his plot (laughs) devices. He called them a MacGuffin. The MacGuffin. (laughs) The MacGuffin. And so the idea is it could be anything, a microfilm like in North by Northwest or a briefcase or it didn't matter what it was. The whole plot was going to turn on these items and where it was and who had it. And the whole mystery is playing out based on this item, but it really doesn't matter what the item is. And uh, reading John, you get the sense Jesus could have used anything as a starting point. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about food and water. Those are easy, everyday items. But he could have talked about, like, shoes. You know, (laughs) you have walked on sandals that wear out, but I bring you whatever. (laughs) Because everything in its way seems to point back Mm -hmm. to him to answer these big questions. And, And he could just pick a MacGuffin that fit the story he wanted to tell and explain his salvation to everyone from there. So, yeah, it's, it's really cool to see how he grabs on to different things. And we're going to dive into some of those today. Yeah. But before we get there, let's find Jesus here in week 41, John 4 through 8. Where is Jesus here in these chapters? I found that Jesus has been both working and resting. <laughs> hey, that sounds like me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got a week off and yet you never sit still. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in John chapter 5, verses 16 to 17, everybody is upset because Jesus heals this guy on the Sabbath. He tells him to pick up his mat and go. And Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. Mm -hmm. So there was this rabbinical debate at one point about whether God keeps the Sabbath. Does God himself observe the Sabbath? And there were lots of different ways rabbis explained it, but the common conclusion is that God's providential care never wanes. So God must never take a day off, which sounds right to me. Sounds reasonable. But the Sabbath itself was a remembrance of God's rest at the end of the six days of creation. Mm -hmm. And he blessed the day after he made everything. And that's kind of the point. He's celebrating the new era wherein he could coexist with his own completed creation. And that's the essence of the seventh day of creation week, entering into his completed temple, so to speak. But his fruitfulness and his work continued in other ways. And you can read Hebrews 4 verses 3 and 10, and you get the sense that he has been resting ever since in a way And yet he has, of course, been doing his work, doing so much throughout the world. And in the same way, Jesus now, today, he has sat down 
yet he has sat down to reign, not to retire. Mm -hmm. He sat down at the right hand of God, but he's not like, I just needed a break. Yes, he's resting in the sense that he has completed his work, and yet he's not done. He is reigning, he's working. And in that day that he was talking to them after he healed these guys back in John 5, he addressed the Jews' questions about his healing and his commands by pointing to the Father with whom he shares this divine nature. And he suggests that his new creation that Jesus brings, brings this ceaseless work that they could never understand. And so to me, the encouraging takeaway is that God never stops caring for me. He's always at work. And yet his work has within it always the spirit of Sabbath. There's no frenzy, no loss of order or peace. All is always in its right place. There's a word that I learned recently by watching all these chef shows. I think it's like mise en place. Mise en place. Yes. Yes. Everything in its right mm-hmm. place. I love that. I don't. I never took <laughs> French. But with God, that's how he's working. He's doing his work, but there's this spirit of rest to yeah. it. And Jesus invites us into that rest even as we work. Come to me, all you who labor, and I will give you rest. It is, I think, fascinating to me just to think about how God made this day and how he himself, like you talked about on the seventh day, took part in this day. He was really the first one to take part in this Sabbath rest. But this is the sticking point that the Jews just keep tripping over with Jesus. Every single time he does something on the Sabbath, they just jump on Mm -hmm. it. In every one of these cases, Jesus is doing something compassionate for someone. He's healing someone. He's doing some important work to prove that he's the son of God. And in every case, this is the sticking point for the Jews. And I just have to wonder if God didn't put this day in here intentionally, in a sense, for these kinds of interactions where Jesus was going to have to set them straight and allow them to trip over themselves in their own understanding of who God is and what he intends. Yeah, I mean, the reason he put it in place, Jesus says in the Synoptic Gospels, is for man. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And here Jesus is, the son of man, the one who comes in the form of man to reign over man, to save man, to bring that healing. And he's bringing life. He's bringing real Sabbath. Very interesting. So where did you (laughs) find Jesus here in these chapters? Well, go back a chapter to John chapter four, and you'll find Jesus having a conversation with a woman at a well, a Samaritan woman. And I find Jesus connecting with an outcast on a personal level. And we're not going to read the whole account because it's rather long. But if you kind of go into the middle section of when Jesus is talking to her, he says something that's revealing about her on a personal level. And so it says, Jesus said to her in verse 16, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Just this short little interaction, (laughs) there's so much here in this conversation that he has, but this is a shocking encounter on so many levels. This is a Jew talking to a Samaritan. They hated each other in general. And here's a Jew talking to a Samaritan. Here's a man speaking alone with a woman. That was also not something that was commonly done. And in this account, we start to realize something else about her, that this is the righteous son of God connecting with an apparently adulterous woman. 
We like to think about the adulterous woman later on in John in just a few chapters. But apparently, the Samaritan woman was also in an adulterous relationship. She had had five husbands, and whoever she's with now isn't her husband. And so this is astounding. And as the disciples come back in verse 27, they're shocked too. They don't know what's going on, but they don't say anything about it. But what I pull out of this really for me is that it's his approach with her that stands out. He doesn't perform some amazing, incredible miracle to prove himself. He just simply tells her some things about her personal life that were impossible for a stranger to know. And so he shares these details with her. He's not lambasting her for her sinfulness. He's not judging her. He's not getting after her. And this reminds me a whole lot of chapter eight when he's talking to the other adulterous woman. He's not criticizing her. He's only using this opportunity to connect with her. And that's the biggest thing. He is relating to her on a personal level, her personal circumstances, and giving her every reason to believe in him. And I just wonder if I would have connected with her like this, or if I would have stopped at that moment, that fact that comes out about her in this relationship with some other guy. Would I have used that as my kind of soapbox? Would I have focused on that moment, Mm. that conversation, or would I really have seen, as Jesus saw here, that her sins need to be dealt with and I need to move on to the greater motivation of pointing her to faith and belief in Jesus. And I I guess it's just a question. Do we find some issue, something in someone's life and just stop right there? Or do we move past it to get to the more important issue at hand? It's a good question. And it's telling that Jesus doesn't gloss over it. He doesn't rush past it. He, in fact, intentionally transitions from this water conversation Mm -hmm. into the deeper spiritual conversation about what that water is by exposing her sin, by exposing her life. But that brings her into that kind of vulnerable nakedness of, you know what, there's nowhere to hide, spiritually speaking. He knows everything I've ever done. Yeah. The word of God judges and discerns Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, this idea that it exposes us down to our core. And once we go through that, not past it, but through that, then we can get, as you're saying, to the real point. The point is not you just stand there in your sinfulness and be a sinner. The point is you have to see your need so you can recognize your spiritual thirst and see the value and worth and blessing of this living water. And that's where he goes with it. That's really what she starts to see. She doesn't walk away feeling shamed. She walks away feeling like this man has shown her something. He is the one that's come to save us. And that's what the people say later on. He's the Christ, the one who's come to be the savior of the world. All right, so let's get into our second segment here, which is scripture du jour. What is the soup du jour? It's the soup of the day. Mm, That sounds good. I'll have that. So we're in John chapter 7 here on Thursday when this episode drops. So what in John chapter 7 really stands out at you as being special or something we can do something with? 
It's funny how a theme starts to develop. It's developing. <laughs> in, in these episodes, it always works out. It's like when somebody comes to you and says, you preached just what I needed. <laughs> how did you know I needed that? Or, or the Sunday night sermon yeah. goes so perfectly with the Sunday morning. How does that work out? I don't even think it's providence most of the time. I think that's the genius of the word of God yeah. and how it just all works together and flows together. But I get here... That the question isn't to judge or not to judge. It's how to judge and how never to judge. Mm. So Jesus says in John 7, verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. <laughs> and here the Jews had, had jumped to a conclusion about him and misunderstood him and the other night, Adrian and I were watching a movie where this guy came up to a girl smiling and she went on this long rant as he walks up to her in like a coffee shop about how she's not sure that she wants to engage with a conversation. She's sure he's a nice guy and he'll probably want to flirt with her, but she's having a hard day. <laughs> so could she be left alone? And then like you all, we, we both said we saw this coming, but he said, I just wanted to ask if I could use this chair. <laughs> to which she said, oh, oh, um, uh, of course. And his girlfriend arrives, right? <laughs> if you've ever jumped to a conclusion. Oh, I have. Only to realize you made a fool of yourself. And as have I, you understand. I, it's much more comfortable to tell a story about a movie I watched than to tell one mm -hmm. on myself. But, <laughs> but it happens so often. And one of the credos, I think, of our era has surprisingly come from Jesus in his words in Matthew 7, verse 1, where he says, to paraphrase, don't judge. Don't judge me. <laughs> don't judge. Everybody loves that verse. Everybody knows that verse. And it, it's from Jesus. It's important. It's a, it's a really important thing to hear. And it's a good starting point into this subject to be careful jumping to judgments and evaluating others critically as if you were the supreme authority. But here we get a little more information. We need to avoid superficial judgments where we haven't considered the facts. We need to avoid jumping to conclusions about people's hearts that we could never know what's going on with them. We have to avoid being overly harsh. We need to watch out. And a good starting point is just to curb your impulse to judge. <laughs> But we can't just let go of critical thinking. We can't let go of discerning things morally. We still have to evaluate things that are happening around us, in ourselves, in other people, and all around us. Right after Matthew 7, 1, where he talks about not judging, comes Matthew 7, 6. Don't give to the dogs what is holy. Don't throw pearls before swine. How do you know which ones are the dogs and which ones are the swine? And then chapter 7, verse 15, a few verses later, that wolves will come in with sheep's clothing and you need to watch their fruit to make sure that you don't become susceptible. So be very careful with judgment, but we must be judicious. We have to be wise and think critically, morally, about what is happening around us. We just need to do it the right way with this kind of righteous judgment and recognizing that we're in dangerous ground every time we step into that world of judgment. Yeah, I, I mean, clearly we have to judge. Yeah. And especially as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Yeah. I'm more concerned with judging those who are in the church. Like, that's really our focus. I'm paraphrasing heavily there, but right. it's our motivation that really 
makes the determination between judging with evil motives and judging with just and right judgment, as he's talking about here. If we're concerned with love and graciousness, we're going to make judgments and determinations considering all the facts. And if we're just jumping to conclusions about a situation without really caring about the people that we're judging, well then, of course, you're going to make wrong judgments and you're going to have the wrong standard because you're starting from a place that isn't considerate of other people. It isn't looking at all the facts. And there's a phrase that I heard a long time ago that's just always stuck with me. Everybody has their reasons. It's just that that thoughtfulness of like, why is somebody doing what they're doing? Why is somebody acting the way that they're mm-hmm. doing? And being curious about them, asking questions, trying to understand what's going on with that motivation. I think we have a much better place of being able to judge people if we're looking at all of the facts instead of just jumping onto one thing like appearances and using that as our criteria. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a helpful point. Thinking about the why and trying to understand people It really also gives you compassion even as you judge, even as you discern, okay, that was a wrong choice and I could see that they made a wrong choice there. I can see the fruit of what they're doing, Mm. but maybe I can see how they got there. It, It doesn't excuse it, but it gives me some insight and some compassion and maybe even a way in to connect and help kind of work with them. And we better, of course, be doing that with ourselves too, to know our heart and know why we fall into the things yeah. we're doing and, and watching ourselves. But, but yeah, I think, I think that's a really good point, thinking about the why. And yeah, like you say, you have to judge. You don't switch off that part of your brain. We've been given it for a reason. We've been studying through Jeremiah here, and the rulers are supposed to be making just judgments, making righteous discernments. The leaders are supposed to be doing that. And the people need to be distinguishing right from wrong, distinguishing the words that are coming from the false prophets from the ones that are coming from the true prophets. We just have to keep our brains turned on. But that's different than that spirit of condemnation and malicious attack and that otherness that we talk about sometimes that people can start to have. You keep your brain turned on and you keep your heart turned on. Yeah. And use both of those in your judgment. Absolutely. I found here in verse 10, Jesus, and I was actually going to use this as my finding Jesus. And then I realized it was in John 7. So I, I picked it for the scripture du jour, but Jesus is secretly listening to private conversations. I love this. So in John 7, verse 10, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, now back up context here, they were all going to Judea to the feast of booths. His brothers were trying to get him to go. Jesus said, no, I'm not going to go with you. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So this is quite a different place to find Jesus. Hiding in the shadows at a party, privately listening to people's conversations. And we've probably all been there. I know, I'll just tell on myself here. And my parents, if you're listening, I'm sorry. But 
You remember landline phones and how you might have a couple phones in your house? (laughs) Oh, yeah. There were times where I picked up the line in the other room and listened in on conversations. I know I'm not proud of it, but we probably all (laughs) overheard something or put ourselves in a position where we could overhear something. And that's kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's privately there at the party and he's listening to people talk. He's still interested in what people are saying about him, although he's not going to go out there publicly yet. And so the takeaway, I guess, for me in this story is that Jesus is always listening. God is always listening to my deepest and innermost feelings. He's there. He's hearing me. Everything is laid bare to him, kind of like we were talking about earlier. And how much faith I have, whether that's a little faith or a large faith, that is clearly seen to him. And As he's overhearing these conversations, he's overhearing some people confessing him, saying he's good, although they don't go so far as to say that he's the Christ or the Messiah, but they're saying he's a good man. Other people don't have faith, don't believe in him and say, no, he's a false teacher. And what I always have to remember is that whatever I truly believe deep down in my heart, even if I never say it, God sees it. God hears it all. That's an interesting point, Jesus lurking in the shadows. (laughs) And I think that these three statements from people are interesting, too. It's like these are the things that people are still saying. Where is he? He is a good man. No, he is leading the people astray. It seems like a lot of people think he was a he was a really good man. I think that. And then there's some people who would say, no, he's not leading you the right way. And then a lot of people saying where is he? (laughs) Look at the world. Everything's falling apart. Where is he now? Or if he wants me to believe in him, why doesn't he reach out and make me believe in him? Where is he? Not that that's what they're saying, but it's just interesting how that kind of looking around for him and as you painted him kind of in the background, it wasn't his time to take the reins yet. It wasn't his time to step up and go through the things that would have he would have gone through if he had made himself publicly available at that time. And in the same way, whenever it's his time, you'll see things happening. It's just interesting. That's a really interesting little paragraph. It's like, as Paul says, people are groping for him, though he's not far from any of us, for in him we live and move and breathe and have our being. He's right there seeing and reaching for you will you turn and reach for him? Yeah, not every day you see Jesus sneaking around and (laughs) here he is (laughs) just kind of hiding in the shadows doing his thing at the party. Nice. All right, so let's get into our last segment and that is Do You Understand? Do you understand anything they're saying? Oh, yes, Master Luke. Remember that I am fluent in over six million forms of... What are you telling them? Hello, I think. So... This is going to be a food-themed version of Do You Understand? (laughs) Just like last week's episode. It seems to always focus on food. I'm going to need to go have a snack after this. But Jesus has said some very mysterious things in these chapters, as we've talked about. And so let's get into the questions that come up as a result of these. And one of the first ones that I see is in John chapter 4, back at that account where Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. I guess the question is, do you understand what Jesus means by food? So Jesus has a conversation with his disciples. They had gone shopping to go get some food and they come back after the Samaritan woman leaves. And in John chapter four, verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. 
So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So kind of a long reading, but just this basic question that that they go back and forth between themselves and they're scratching their heads like, here, Jesus, have some lunch. No, I have food to eat that you don't even know about. Like, did somebody feed him while we were gone? Like, he doesn't seem very hungry. Did you get him a sandwich? <laughs> I didn't get him a sandwich. We did. <laughs> but the point here is that Jesus finds sustenance, his food and water, so to speak, in doing his father's will. That's what he's talking about. And fortunately, he explains himself, so we don't have to scratch our heads for too long. But in John 4, verse 4, it's interesting that John points out that he had to pass through Samaria. And later on, he would say in John 6, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so I know I connect with this on a basic level. You ever get so caught up in a project that's almost finished that it doesn't matter if it's lunchtime? Like you just want to plow right through it and get it done and you just ignore those impulses to eat and you just get the job done. And Jesus here is more consumed by a project that's almost done, finishing up his teaching opportunity with the Samaritans that he had to go teach than he is for stopping to eat lunch. And I think this is a special time in which Jesus is seeing the opportunity they have to be in Samaria. Now, I don't know who planted. I don't know who sowed the seed. There's a lot of conjecture. Who is the one that taught these Samaritans about God and about Jesus, about the Messiah? Because this Samaritan woman seems very well learned. She seems pretty on top of things. She's looking for the Messiah. She knows about God. She knows about Jacob's well, all these things that she knows about. So somebody had taught her and Jesus sees the opportunity there, like the finish line to teach her the rest to teach these people in her city. And that's just what he's pushing for. And that's the food that's going to sustain him and fulfill him. Yeah, the Samaritans, they had the Pentateuch, right? So she Mm -hmm. knew about who God was and who Jacob was, but she didn't have all the prophets or all the other things. There are hints about the Messiah in the Pentateuch that they're looking for. So, yeah, it's interesting how you put that, that she had been taught and knew enough that she was on the starting line. And Jesus sees this personal mission in bringing her across that finish line. And isn't that interesting? This one lady is his personal mission. And whoever Jesus was with became his mission. You read that over and over again in John. It never says it, but you see Nicodemus, Nathaniel, or Philip, or whoever he's with becomes (laughs) the center of his attention as he's leading them forward and challenging them. And that is him being fed. That is him doing the will of his father. And it just reveals something that you kind of know if you ever drift away, as I guess most of us do at times, drift away from being on task, we might say, on purpose, Mm -hmm. living what you're meant to be living, that is doing God's will. 
And whenever we get away from whether Satan kind of just, just pulls us into a downward spiral of bad choices, wrong choices, I've just, I've gone through this so many times and there is a kind of malnourishment that starts happening. There is a kind of poor health that you have. You become weak and you don't really know because you don't have the same kind of pangs of hunger that you know immediately. And you've got the billboard for a Big Mac that tells you, oh, that's the problem. I'm hungry. (laughs) But then whenever you come back and you start eating, you realize this is the nourishment I needed. I need to be walking in God's will. And there are, of course, a lot of people dying of starvation in the world. And Jesus could walk through this world with a different kind of satisfaction, no matter what else was happening, in that he was healthy spiritually always because he always did God's will. Yeah. The more you try to fill and satisfy yourself with things around you, stuff and materialism, the more you realize that all of those things are hollow and empty. They're empty calories. There's nothing satisfying like doing God's will. And that's what Jesus was totally motivated by. Yeah, this just develops that theme of (laughs) being filled, being satisfied. And so the question is, do you understand what Jesus means by thirsty? (laughs) Right there in John 4, verses 13 to 14, Jesus says to the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Well, food and water. There we go. Yeah. You're going to be talking about food today. I'm going to be talking about water today. (laughs) And my parents used to have this water fountain that my dad and I often stood by just filling up our glasses and gulping down ice cold purified water. It was so good. It's amazing how good water can be. It's just so weird. But good, clean, cold water is so satisfying. And my dad had something that he said over and over. He'd always say it, and and we'd just kind of chuckle together. And I quote it to people all the time now because it means nothing to anybody (laughs) else, but it makes me think of my dad. And I'll just say, as my dad would say, the Lord sure knew what he was doing when he made water. I've heard him say that. He would just say that all the time. Have you heard that? Yes, I have. Boy, Lord sure knew what he was doing when he made water. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a basic experience, getting thirsty and then drinking satisfying water. That's what made it a perfect illustration for Jesus, Mm -hmm. you know? We all get it, but we have deeper longings than our desire for food and drink, as we were just talking about. Whether we're self-aware enough to notice them or not, sometimes they drive us to do dumb things Mm -hmm. because we don't know what's going on and we're lacking them. So people will just crave attention, you know, all the craziness that happens on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. Sometimes it gets dark. Sometimes people do horrible, horrible things because they don't have a sense of love or belonging or meaning or purpose, security, hope, whatever name you want to put on it. What we're really thirsting for is the abiding presence of the Lord, the water that fills us with him and lets us live with him forever. He says, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And we'll talk in a little bit about another quote where he explains a little more about what that spring of water is. But thirst is not just a physical sensation. We are thirsty for something more 
if you don't find at the heart of it all the need for the Lord and for the life, eternal life that he brings. We talked about God making the Sabbath and then using it as a lesson to teach his people. God made us Mm. have this desire for hunger and thirst. Yeah. I think that's such a huge reason why Jesus is using these basic fundamental desires that every single person has to teach a greater truth. He's the one that made us need these things. And so why not make an analog between the -hmm. physical and the spiritual? And of course, she had no idea what he was talking about, but such a cool way of Jesus teaching here, which he does later on in John chapter six. One of my favorite passages. I love John six. Because Jesus lays the gauntlet down and basically says, do you understand what he means by eating my flesh? I'm talking about food, but ew, Ew. right? That's kind of gross. And that's what they said. (laughs) But in John chapter 6, verse 53, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Just such a challenging, you you could see him just poking Mm -hmm. them over and over again. He just continues to repeat it over and (laughs) over again. Like if you're uncomfortable with this, people who are thinking fleshly, you're going to be super uncomfortable by the crescendo of what Jesus is saying here. He's the bread of life. Oh, he's the cannibal (laughs) rabbi. Right. (laughs) So they're following him here in John 6 for the food. You'll remember he just fed 5,000 of them or more just a little bit ago. And now they're following him and they want more food. And he's pointing out, look, you're just looking for the food. And he calls them out and then challenges them with this really difficult teaching. And he wants them to think spiritually. He wants them to stop thinking physically. And I think it's interesting here, though, too, that he knows full well that what he's going to say is going to cause people to leave and not want to follow him anymore. That's what we read about in John 6, verse 66. A lot of people at that point just threw up their hands and said, this is too weird for me, I'm out. And they didn't really get it. But what is he talking about here? Eat my flesh. Now, I think the key to unlock this is in chapter 6, verse 54, when he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. You put that together with what he said just a little bit ago in John 6, verse 40, where he says, everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. So those two phrases, and I will raise him up on that last day, one is talking about eating my flesh, drinking my blood, and one is talking about believing in the son. And I think that's the connection that he's making there. Believing in Jesus, that's what really brings true sustenance, true satisfaction, this true food and true drink that he's talking about, belief in him and Jesus dying on the cross. That's the only way to satisfy our hunger and thirst for God and his righteousness. Something similarly that he talked about in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 verse 6. 
Yeah, it's like it's another way of saying what he'll say in John 15 about that he's the vine and we're the branches. From the vine comes the sustenance that feeds us. And he is the sustenance that feeds us. He is that which gives us life. We have to take him into ourselves and make him part of us as you do with food. Mm -hmm. You know, it does sound gross. I know it's, it is, it's Jesus metaphor. Take it up with him. (laughs) But it's about, I totally agree with you. It's about believing in him and trusting in him and following him and looking to him as the one who gives us everything we need for life, taking him into ourselves. And, you know, it makes us think about the Lord's Supper because he's talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And those are the figures that are used in the Lord's Supper. But the Lord's Supper doesn't give us life, doesn't give us resurrection. But the Lord's Supper looks to the exact same thing that Jesus is talking about here, if that makes sense. The Lord's Supper and Jesus' words here are both pointing to the same thing, which is, You take me into yourself. You trust in me. You remember me. You look to my sacrifice and that painful, gross, awful idea of me dying for you and you having to take me as your Passover lamb. The lamb died for you. Blood is Mm -hmm. gross. (laughs) Meat, in a way, killing an animal and eating it is kind of gross. But that's what they did with the Passover lamb, and it saved their lives. And that's what Jesus does for us. He gave himself. We take him, and his awful sacrifice gives us life and protects us. And I'll go back to something I said before. God made us with the reaction of grossness to what he's talking about. Yeah. And so he knows that we're going to have a visceral reaction to this. And that's what he wants us to have in the Lord's Supper. Exactly. In thinking about these words, he wants us to just be struck with the gravity of what is happening here and the gravity of his death. When we see that, as they saw in the sacrifices in the Old Testament, when they had to themselves kill that lamb, they realized, oh, that's what my sins did. That's what my poor choices caused me to have to do. And that reaction is exactly why Jesus is pushing this issue here. Exactly. So going back to the waters. <laughs> Let's close this food. thing out. You know, you take a take a sip of water, you take a bite of food, take a sip of water, take a bite of food. My final question, do you understand what Jesus means by rivers of living water flowing from our hearts? Mm-hmm. This is during the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, Matthew 7, verse 37, beginning on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You just see him like standing up on a a table and shouting that in the midst of this giant throng that's gathered for the most joyful day, really, of the year, this celebration at the end of the tabernacles. And it says, now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Good thing he put an answer key there. (laughs) It is so nice to have that. (laughs) Right? I wish we had that all the time. It is really nice whenever John or somebody comes in and says, hang on, you might miss the (laughs) point here, which I definitely will if he doesn't explain it. So earlier he said in John 4, 
the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Well, here the spring of water welling up to eternal life is explained as the spirit of God that's given to those who believe in him. And Jesus says these words, verse 2 and verse 10 tell us this is the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And man, there's a lot to say about it. I'll, I'll link to a sermon in the show notes that I did about the Feast of Booths, because it's a really interesting and important feast that we don't talk about as much as Passover and Pentecost. But one of the things I'll just draw our attention to right now about it is every day during the feast, a priest drew water from the pool of Siloam and then entered the city as the temple choir sang Psalm 113 to 118, which is this group of psalms called the Hallel sometimes. And they're these wonderful psalms about deliverance from Egypt and, and all these kinds of wonderful words of praise. And the climax comes in Psalm 118 as the chorus sings, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord, mm -hmm. which you can kind of remember the triumphal entry. Those words, Hosanna means save us. Yeah. And that's these words, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So there's a messianic tone to these things. And as they're carrying this water in, remember, Jesus is about to say something about rivers of living water. They're pouring them out. So they go in and the men wave these entwined branches and the water is brought into the temple and poured out before the Lord, symbolizing God's provision in the desert. Remember the water that came constantly from the rock and that rock was Christ, 1 Corinthians 10. The waters also looked forward to the pouring out of God's spirit, which we read about, especially in Joel 2. And Peter quotes that Joel 2 is this picture of these refreshing rains coming down, the waters coming down. And then like the answer key to what those living waters coming down are is the spirit of God coming down and doing this amazing work. And these rivers that would flow from the presence of God. I always love Ezekiel's picture as he spends all of these chapters defining the temple and what it looks like. And then at the end, out of this temple that's been perfectly rightly built flows the waters, these rivers of water, and it turns all of the wilderness and the deserts into this living, abundant kind of a jungle full <laughs> of life. And it goes to the Dead Sea and it brings life to the Dead Sea. It is going all over. And Zechariah 13 talks about some of this. As a water pitcher entered the water gate, the people would recite the words of Isaiah's song which in Isaiah 12, verse three says, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And here in John's account of this particular feast of Booth, Jesus references Isaiah's great invitation in Isaiah 55, where he talks about, come to me, all you who are thirsty, and I will give you water and let anybody who's thirsty come. I'm going to give it to you water without cost, food without cost. Why would you pay for something that's not really food, not really drink. And so in this case, as you said, John doesn't want us to miss <laughs> what he's talking about. It's God's spirit. And man, God's spirit is a hard thing sometimes to fully understand. Even Jesus talked about it with Nicodemus in chapter three. You know, you see the wind blowing 
sort of when you see the trees moving, but you don't really know. You can't see the spirit of God at work, but you see his work. You see what he brings. In John 6, Jesus said that the spirit is what brings life. Flesh can't bring true life. The spirit of God is going to bring life to us. And of course, we read in places like Titus 2 about the waters of regeneration as we're baptized, that regeneration comes from God's spirit that has been poured out on us. So this isn't just about those miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit or the things that the prophets or the apostles were led into all truth, as Jesus is going to talk about. This is the life that comes, as Jesus says, to all those who believe as they receive his spirit, as we receive the gift of his spirit. And we think about Acts 5 and Acts 2 and all these passages. But it's just a beautiful thing to think about Jesus being this source of water that's flowing out of us. It's there's so much. It doesn't just fill us up. It doesn't just satisfy it. It's just like it's shooting out of us. <laughs> there's so much. It's bubbling forth all over the place. We are the temple of the Lord, that Ezekiel 47 temple from which God's waters flow and bring life to the world. And it's not from us. We're not the source of it, but we are conduits of that Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ message, that water, that life, all of these things that bring power and life and blessing to others. If we don't speak it, who will? Well, I think you just put the geek in Bible geeks. (laughs) (laughs) I just totally nerd out so much, didn't I? (laughs) Yeah, that's deep. And there's a lot there, especially since we don't really participate in that feast of booze and we weren't there, there's a lot that is implied just in knowing about that feast that really illuminates a lot of what Jesus is saying here. He's not just bringing up rivers of living water out of nowhere. Yeah, it's, it is really neat to think about. And there's this picture at the end of the Bible in Revelation 7 of us waving of, of the people, the saints, in heaven, singing songs of salvation, waving palms and singing just like those people in the booths as we celebrate how God tabernacles with us, as God lives with us forever at that point and will will never be taken away from us, never separated from us. And we will be calling out these joyful songs about the Lord's salvation. With joy, we draw water from the wells of salvation. I think this point leads us nicely into our challenge this week. Yeah. And so a good challenge might be to meditate on some passage that maybe you've only scratched the surface of. And here we just took a pickaxe into this passage in John chapter (laughs) 7 and struck water there in the well. I love it. If there is a passage that maybe you haven't gotten into as heavily, meditate on that this week. Think about it. Study about it. Cross-reference, look up and do some research on it and see what it's talking about that maybe you never saw before. The source of real root-soaking life, according to Psalm 1, is meditating on 
God's law. And from that, from meditating on his instruction, we get those roots soaked as a tree that's planted by a river so that we can thrive and flourish. So it all ties in, just like we said. (laughs) Well, soak your roots, everyone. (laughs) And thanks so much, everyone, for tuning into the Bible Geeks podcast. You can find us on our website at BibleGeeks.fm. You can find show notes for this episode at BibleGeeks.fm slash 82 or in your podcast player of choice. Hop along with our Into the Book Bible reading program. We're almost done. We're in the fourth quarter. Go to BibleGeeks.fm slash into the book to find out where we're headed next. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, reach out. Let us know what you want to hear about on upcoming shows. That's at BibleGeeks.fm slash contact. And until next week, everyone, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom. <laughs>